I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today took a very brave move around eight years ago. She left a career in the corporate world and dedicated her time, her effort, her knowledge, her experience to helping companies and individuals alike to navigate that whole messy thing that we call careers. Together with her business partner, Sarah Ellis, they co-founded a company called Amazing If, of which she is the CEO. They together co-authored The Squiggly Careers, and together they host a podcast, The Squiggly Careers podcast, where each week they take a work challenge and share tips and tools to help you navigate it. Anything really from uh, looking for a new job to dealing with a difficult colleague. And of course, during the tough times of COVID-19 and lockdown, they talk about how you can thrive in your career during those times and how you can work with others remotely and so on. I truly recommend that this is a topic that you may want to look into right now. And this is definitely a podcast that I think would help you. But today I will focus with Helen more on that bravery of leaving what many people would consider a safe option to follow your dreams and how that can be an interesting choice of a career. Hey. Hey. Hi, Ellen. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm so, so happy that you joined me today. You do realize career and work normally are not topics I discuss on Slow-Mo. I, I think work is boring and horrible, right? But your approach to career is actually quite interesting. And I have to admit careers have been a big reason for unhappiness. You know, that angle of careers, I remember vividly when I was miserable, even though my career was shooting through the roof, I was still miserable. I was so dissatisfied with it. It's like, it's taking two weeks longer for that promotion. It's like, what's wrong with them, right? And I think the approach, you know, starting from the title of your book is just so spot on. You call it squiggly and squiggly careers are exactly what careers are all about, right? They're not straight, they're not linear, they're not what they tell us that they are. I want to start first from you to the topic of careers, right? But I want to start from you and ask you, was your career squiggly? Uh, Interesting. So when I started out in my career, I went on to graduate schemes and I definitely thought the job to do was to climb the ladder and to climb the ladder in organisations that would look good on my CV. So I worked for some really big brands and I went into their graduate schemes and that's what I started to do. And I was good at it, which I sometimes think is a bit of a challenge. Like I was good at working in large organisations and going through kind of the ladder-like process. But the more time I spent in those organizations climbing those ladders, the more I realized that there was more I wanted from work. My success wasn't going to be measured by the level that I reached or how many promotions I achieved. And that actually 
the things that I wanted to do were different to that and I wanted to move in different directions and I didn't want to feel that that was a bad thing to do it was just what I wanted to do and I thought that I could be better because of it and I think there was a point in which in my career where I sort of realized that that wasn't always available to me in the organizations that I worked with because I I was trying to do something different and something that was a bit less easy for them to manage or they didn't quite know how to manage somebody who wanted to do horizontal moves and side projects and start degrees at the same time as they're working and do all of that stuff simultaneously at mm-hmm. the same time. I think I was a complex conundrum for some companies yeah, to you manage. Just, you, <laughs> di- you didn't want to fit in the mold and it's much easier to sort of manage the herd. It's like everyone behave the same way so that we can figure you out. And if you don't fit within that, then you're trouble, basically. Yeah. 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 <laughs> But I smile a lot. So they were like, well, she's quite a lot of trouble, but she's quite positive. So <laughs> yeah, it's like, like, yeah, let's keep her because she's smiling. But yeah, she's trouble. <laughs> yeah. How many years did you do in corporate careers? Oh, I did probably 15 years in corporate oh life. And I worked in, I was marketing director at Microsoft, head of marketing at Virgin. I did a global marketing role for BP. Yeah. So we both got Microsoft in our, in our kind of background and our careers. So, and I, to be honest, I love those roles. It wasn't that I didn't love the companies that I worked with or the jobs that I did. I did. I loved them, but I always wanted to do more than just those jobs. And I wanted to be in more places and contribute in different ways and, and sometimes I would bump up against restrictions to that when yeah. people would say, but you've just got to do this job. Just do this job well. You don't need to go and do all those other things as well. And I would say, yeah, but me volunteering over there is going to help me in this job. Or me doing that side project means that I get better at this thing because of it. But that always felt like quite a hard sell because I was fighting against the staircase or the ladder that really most organizations want you to manage you against. Yeah. And in a way, I mean, I think this really, really gets to the core of what most people feel very unhappy about because, you know, you go into work normally at a young age, you have all of those dreams, all of those ideas, all of that energy, and then you're being boxed in. It's like, look, move your left hand three times and then tap your right finger twice and that's your job. And But guys, I can, you know, tap my left hand and move my right finger and they go like, no, we don't have the system for that. And that becomes really disappointing, I think, would be the least word about it. And I think when you're stuck in it, people start to feel very unhappy. And But that's not squiggly. Maybe more steep at the end of the ladder. I mean, the more you are on the ladder, the harder it is to continue to go up. What's squiggly about? So my career became squiggly. Well, a few different things. I've worked in lots of different industries and lots of different organizations. And squiggly doesn't have to mean that you move around from company to company. If you're in the organization which embraces it you can squiggle within the company it's about not being restricted to one particular role or being defined by one particular skill set and having the freedom and the fluidity and the flexibility to to move around in directions that work for you and where you can do your best work so I guess for me that meant that I worked in a few different professions so I did sales I did marketing I did innovation I did different industries you know technology FMCG I started a side project. So the business that I now run and everything that we now do on Squiggly Careers was actually a side project that started eight years ago that was never meant to be, was never meant to be my job. So I think now I've gone from working in large, large, very large organizations to working in a very small one. So I guess that's where I'm at at my Squiggly career now. But 
I don't want to fix my future. I don't know what will be next. I just know that I'm learning and doing the best work that I can do now. And I'm open to where that might go in the future. I love that. I love that. Actually, as a matter of fact, is if people just take that idea and start to think about their own lives, their own careers, most people are passionate about something. You decided to take that passion and because you're an optimist, obviously, you want to do things, you want to try new things. You're like, okay, I'm going to give it a try. Let's see if this thing is something, right? And now it's your full-time attention. It's your full-time job and you're helping a lot of people. So the idea is now you're no longer looking at your own career. You're helping others with their own careers. Is that correct? Yeah. So I think when we started the business, we kind of, myself and my, a person I'd gone to university with, Sarah, who was a friend and thankfully still is a friend, but is now my business partner. We started it as a side project because we realized that careers had gotten more squiggly, but all too often the support for career development was only available to the fortunate few. So it was when you got to a certain level, you maybe would got onto a career development course or you got to the next level above that and you maybe got a coach. But everybody was experiencing all of this career change and uncertainty and unpredictability, but not everyone could access the support. So we started it to help people as broad as we could with the skills to succeed in in a squiggly career and then it it just grew but it was only ever supposed to be a side project but what happened was people said this is the support that I need but can I have more of it and then it it has become a job because there was a point at which I was doing five day a week job for Microsoft I've got two young children and I was running this sort of scaling side project and I just thought to your point about being optimism like what's the worst that can happen? I'm just going to, I'm just going to give this a try. I'm going to try and help some more people and try and make this bigger. And worst case scenario, I'll go back to what I'd done before and that's okay. And I think that idea of going back being okay is also quite squiggly because in a staircase like career, going back was never okay. Like you, you, the job to do was like, go up the ladder. You didn't go down the ladder. That was a failure. But I think in squiggly careers, you can move sideways. You can go back, you can go up. There's no one direction that's better than another. There's just what's right for you right now. So that's the, being the journey. And now we are trying to help as many people as we can to develop those skills so that they can move in the directions that are right for them. Helen, hold on. I'm sorry. I mean, (laughs) I'm going to have to repeat the words that you said to you so that you hear them and see how people think of them. So you basically said, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, can you imagine (laughs) if if you ask people that, they'll say people get really worried about careers. It's like, what's the worst that can happen? I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to starve to death. I'll be homeless. Nobody will want to come near me because I'll smell bad. And, you know, people really, really build stories around what's the worst that can happen. And to you, you were just saying, okay, you know, if I fail on this, I'll go back to the corporate ladder. That's tell us a bit more about that. Actually, I think this is the true inspiration people need. Well, I think this is about the skills. So there are two of the skills that we talk about, which I think relate to this point. So one is about strengths and one is about confidence. So in order for me to say what's the worst that could happen, I had a lot of understanding about what I was good at 
like I'd focused a lot about where do I add value? All these companies that I want to work in, whether it's my own or these other ones, where do I really add value? And I knew what that was. That was building relationships. That was making things happen. It was developing people. It was growing businesses that you can put me in lots of different contexts. And those are the things that I will be good at. There's a whole host of things that I'm not good at, but those are the four things that where I add value. So I knew that even if I left that career in corporate life and did my own thing, it didn't work out. I could still trade on those strengths in lots of different ways. And I had that insight into my strengths. I also had worked really hard on my confidence. So we often talk about these things called confidence gremlins, and they are like beliefs that hold you back. It's the if I fail, I'm doomed. Uh, it's the, I don't know enough. I'm going to get found out. I'm not smart enough. I'm not old enough. It's all of those. And sometimes it's all of those at the same time. And lots of people have confidence gremlins and they stop them taking action, stop them taking chances, stop them speaking up, stop them moving in different directions because of all of that doubt. And I, of course, have those doubts that everybody has confidence gremlins, but I've worked really hard on mine. And so some of mine, my confidence gremlins are about, I always used to worry that if I asked difficult questions, people would think I was a difficult person. And so it was just better to be just nice all the time to everybody. <laughs> and then I started to realize that that meant that I wasn't challenging things that I didn't think was right or standing up for things that I thought should happen and that it was holding me back and it was holding other people back. And once I learned to cage that gremlin, I don't really worry about being a difficult person anymore. I don't go out of my way to be a difficult person, but it's not a belief that holds me back if there's something that I want to say or something I want to do. And so for me, the reason I could say what's the worst that could happen is because I'd caged my confidence gremlins and I had the insight into my strengths. And I know that it might sound flippant to say what's the worst that can happen, but when you have that as the foundation for the career choices that you make, I think you can be a bit bolder and a bit braver. That's so profound, by the way. This actually, as a matter of fact, I would say is a skill for life, not just for careers. I mean, the idea of, of self-confidence, self-love, of understanding yourself, understanding your strengths, understanding what you're worried about and the reality of that these things are either part of you and you have to be proud of them and live with them and manage them if they are, like you said, you know, if you don't have to be extra difficult with people, but if you have a question, you should ask it. But this is a very difficult skill. I mean, this is something that probably took you years, right? Yes, it did. And do you know the thing that really spurred me on? Because I was aware of it. You know, you're aware of the confidence gremlin. Like when you think you don't know enough or you think you're going to get found out or you're too young to apply for that job, you know it's there. It feels really uncomfortable. But the thing that gave me the motivation to do something about it was actually when I realized that it wasn't just holding me back, it was holding other people back. So when I realized that because of that confidence gremlin, I wasn't standing up for people in my team or I wasn't championing things that might not have been comfortable to champion. Um, that's when I really thought, I really want to cage this gremlin. I need to, we talk about moving from like a really limiting belief. So if I ask a difficult question, people will think I'm a difficult person, for example, to a limitless belief, something that's more empowering, which would sound for me more like if I ask a difficult question, I'll create different opportunities. That is a much more helpful thing for me to tell myself when I'm in those moments where I'm uncomfortable. If I say, oh, no, it's a difficult question. They're going to think I'm difficult. I won't take action. But if I say it's a difficult question, but I know this creates different opportunities. And just starting to believe and create 
a different narrative for yourself opens up so many more things that you can do and you could always do those things it's just your own thinking got in the way of you being able to take that action is there a process like do you list them down do you address them in a specific way uh, is there like yes. sort of a of a gremlin meditation kind of thing <laughs> Yes, there is actually a process. So the first thing we get people to do, might sound strange, but it's to draw their gremlin. <laughs> like get a bit okay. of paper. And if you were going to take like what this beast in your brain feels like, like draw it. So some people, when they've got, I'm too young, they draw a dummy. Um, uh, <laughs> some people will they draw all kinds of funny pictures. We sometimes have confidence gremlin galleries where people either virtually or when we used to be in a room would put these pictures up on the wall. And the point of doing that is it takes something that actually feels really uncomfortable. Like this is a... (laughs) And makes fun of it. (laughs) Well, it sort of makes it a bit real. And it means that Mo can go, well, Helen, what is that? And I say, oh, well, this is this. And this is when it shows up. And it becomes something that I've kept inside myself for quite a long time. And it's been probably been quite a bit of a weight for me, a source of concern. And something that I can suddenly talk about and someone else can go oh my gosh, me too. That's exactly how I feel when that happens. And you start to realise, oh gosh, this isn't just me who finds it hard to challenge people or is a bit scared of presenting or worries that I don't know enough. And if I ask a question, people are going to think that I'm not very clever. Actually, there's lots of other people who have that confidence gremlin too. So the first thing we do is we get people to get it out of their head and onto a bit of paper. It just makes it a tangible thing we can do something with. And then we move to caging. And there are three steps to caging. The first one is you've got to put your gremlin under the microscope a little bit and get more objective about it than emotional. So when it's in our head and it's sort of driving us, we're quite emotional. But when we get objective and we start to observe and we think, when is this triggered? Is it certain people? Is it certain places? Like, what are the situations when my gremlin really pops up? And also, if I look around me at other people that I work with and I see them doing this thing that I'm scared of, do I critique them in the same way that I critique myself? Because, for example, Mo, if you ask a difficult question, I think, wow, Mo's asked an amazing question. (laughs) Smart, Yeah. yeah. Smart guy, amazing. It's just I do it and I think, you're horrendous. What are you doing (laughs) disrupting the status quo? That is so true. Yeah, we always reflect differently. The way we treat ourselves is just very different. We could even be proud of someone else when they do it. 100%. And when you start to observe it, you start to go, hang on, there's something slightly odd going on in my mind because I'm judging myself in a very different way than I am other people. So the first step one, observe it so that we can take away some of the emotion and start to almost challenge some of the assumptions we've been making about this gremlin. The second thing is moving from the limiting to the limitless belief. So you've got to get down the statement that you say to yourself, that negative narrative that's holding you back. You've got to write it down and then you've got to reframe it into something that's more positive. So I'll give you an example. A negative, a limiting belief would be something like, I always fail. I always fail. Or kind of, if it goes wrong, I'll have failed. And this word of failure is big. It looms over you, stops you ever taking action. But a more limitless belief would be, if I fail, I never fail to learn. So it's not saying you're not going to fail, because of course, we're all going to succeed, we're all going to fail. But instead of going, oh, if it goes wrong, I'll have failed, full stop, you might say, I would never fail to learn. And just those small reframes can really help people in the moments when it feels tough. 
And then the last thing is all about action and reward, action and reward. So you've got to understand what small actions look like. So let's say I'm scared of presenting. I think I'm horrendous at presenting and I'm scared of presenting. The first thing that I'm going to do is not put myself up for a TED talk. That is so scary in action that I will never, ever take it. But a small action could be, I'm going to present for five minutes on my team meeting about my learnings from a project that I've just worked on. And then the point is you accumulate all the small actions and it builds your confidence over time, which goes back to your point about this stuff does take time. And then the most important thing is that you reward yourself along the way because it feels tough. If you don't like asking a question and saying, I don't know the answer to that, that's going to feel really hard for you. So you've got to find a way to reward yourself with, I don't know, a walk, a podcast, listen to your podcast, have a bit of a break, eat some chocolate, whatever the chocolate. thing is that chocolate gives you works. chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> the simple pleasures, it doesn't have to be excessive, but find a way to sort of recognize the progress that you're making. And then over time, you can cage the gremlin. Really difficult to kill it. Like you're never going to love doing this thing that you find uncomfortable, but you can stop it holding you back. You can cage it, you can befriend it. You don't have to kill it. But can I ask you something? So do you sometimes find that the gremlin did not exist at all. I, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but you don't come across as a difficult person at all. Is that a possibility that you may have had a belief that actually is self-created or maybe because you're scrutinizing yourself too much that you've created something that's actually not there at all? Yeah, I think so. I definitely think you magnify these things. Like, I definitely think you magnify it. So my um, business partner, her confidence gremlin is about conflict. So she she hates any kind of conflict. And um, her perception is really warped by how much she dislikes it. And she gives the example sometimes of she was in a meeting, she used to work for Sainsbury's, and she was in a meeting like higher levels of conflict and she came out of it and like heart going boom 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 and hated the meeting and she spoke to a colleague and said that meeting was awful wasn't it and he said no and she said yeah it was it's like a nine out of ten conflict he was like no it was just a discussion we were just debating different points of view and I think sometimes your confidence gremlin creates a filter on the world that only you can see. And yeah. so whether it's actually true or not, or whether you've magnified it because you're overthinking it, these things feel really real to you. And I think that's the point. Whether it's real or not, it affects the actions that you take and that can hold you back in your career. I love that. I think that's actually an exercise that we should probably ask all of our listeners to go through. I mean, the idea here is, you need to find those things out. You need to cage them, shoot them if you want to, or befriend them, do something about them. Because I will have to tell you one of the things that are true about my career is I have a few brain defects that are quite a blessing, to be honest. One of them is I don't have many fears, not because I'm brave, but because I actually don't perceive the things that make me afraid. And so that helped me tremendously in my career when I when I was a young salesman, like 21, 22, when I needed to discuss something. I was a young salesman at 24. That was my first sales job. If I needed to discuss something with the CEO, I would just knock on the doors and go to that assistant and say, can I meet the CEO? And they're like, and you are? Uh, I'm the salesman. <laughs> it's like, right? And I need to talk to him about or her about this. And it's easy for him. It was it was a brain defect, but without having those fears, I think it just got me really, really far. And I think addressing those things is really important. Can I ask you really a defining question? What is a career? Ah, oh, yeah, that is an interesting question. What is a career? 
You know those words when we ask a six-year-old and the six-year-old doesn't know what it is, then these are words that we invented at work. This normally is my measurement. If a six-year-old doesn't know it, then it's something we invented in the workplace. I mean, I think a career is just a collection of roles that you have done at work. And some people have a career that is more connected than others. So, and some people have a career that's more intentional than others, and some people have careers that are more squiggly than others. I think a career at its heart is just time spent at work and the collection of the jobs that you have done at work. I was actually researching the origins of the career ladder. It's really interesting. So the career ladder was created in the 1900s when there were far more people that started to work in offices and organizations needed a way to manage and motivate people because I've never had this many people doing these same kind of jobs before. And so it was created when there was quite a lot of conformity in the jobs that people were doing and a way for managers to control people uh, with their work Mm -hmm. and manage and motivate them. And you kind of go, gosh, that was created a hundred years ago and it's still here now. And it's kind of sticking around, even though work looks very different for people. So yeah, I think careers and career ladders they're sort of notions really, aren't they? But for me, a career is just a collection of roles and how those collections of roles connect depends, I think, on a lot of the time how intentional a person has been about managing that career, managing those those connections of roles. Would you have a... No, I mean, I have multiple definitions. Actually, I really looked at it. I worked for a very short time in a tobacco company, which I don't talk to the world about that often. It is probably what built my value system in work very strongly. As I worked at British American Tobacco, I was told it was an adult choice. And then when I joined, I realized it wasn't. And I really, really disturbed my being. And so I left very quickly. But when I was there, they introduced a career planning module or something like that or program. And in that, there were six pages of information that you needed to think about, of which only one was the job. And the rest was What do you want to do about your family? Where in the world do you want to live? What do you want to learn? And so on and so forth. And I remembered at the time, because my real school of work, if you want, was IBM. And in IBM, I had some of the most respected colleagues that were 30 years in IBM and still systems engineers. So they decided that for them, they didn't have to go across a ladder They wanted to go deeper and deeper and deeper in something that they loved doing. And normally they were technical people because salespeople, we talk, we just want to talk to more people basically, right? But the technical people were like, okay, now I understood this about the system. I want to understand more and so on. And so between those two experiences, I started to realize that that collection of jobs, if you want, First of all, it doesn't have to continue to be bigger all the time. You do need to be paid more. You do need to be appreciated more, but you don't need the titles. And at the same time, that it's just a subset of what a life is all about. What is a job and how does it affect my two children? And how does it affect where I want to live? If they wanted to send me to Zanzibar for three years to get a a slightly better title, is that something my family is going to be comfortable with? And so, yeah, it's that definition that gets some people confused, I think, because they're constantly chasing the bigger job. I think as well, there's those questions that you identify and how work is part of our life. 
that looks different for all of us and that's why another reason why I don't really think career ladders work because they sort of predicate that we all want to move upwards and go in the same direction and actually careers should be as individual as we are and some people have families and will be factoring that into what their work life looks like and some people are super ambitious and they want to get to the top and there's no right or wrong and that's I think where career ladders are really unhelpful because they create comparison traps where people start thinking well I've I've been here as long as Mo and I'm not at that level so what am I doing wrong or why is he better than me and they start to create almost like a competitive work environment where we have comparison that affects people's confidence and I don't think any of those feelings and emotions are helpful for people and so if we take that away that idea that we all have to go up a ladder on the same path I think we liberate the systems engineers that want to stay at their thing and just get absolutely brilliant at it and keep evolving their skills but stay in the same thing and then you liberate people like me who want to be able to move around in different places and, and yeah. bring all that knowledge together yeah exactly this and both of those are equally valid careers or collections of jobs to have it's just they're as individual as the people that are doing them what you said was spot on because careers are also one of the carrots that management uses to motivate people. And I heard you once uh, talk about what you call the shiny objects, right? And those things that are constantly dangling in front of people to dazzle them, you know, a title, a status, a, a parking spot, all of those things. And the question is, are those things important really if they were going to affect your children? I don't know. I think, you know, it depends on your values. Maybe one of your values is about family or connection or belonging, and therefore those things aren't important to you. But maybe somebody else's values are about status or significance, and they are important to them. And again, that's fine. It's just we should give people, we should create environments where people can talk about their values, and then we should create options where people can have jobs that fulfill those values. And I think you have to have a much more open conversation with people and drop the judgment, like drop the judgment from the person who says, do you know what the most important thing for me is that I can feel a sense of belonging and that I have balance so that I can balance my work life. And then you don't judge the other person who says, well, to be honest, the thing that's most important to me is drive and results. And that's the thing that really helps me to pick the things that I want to do. They're both fine. It's just they're different. When you said it, I heard you saying the most important thing that matters to me is to drive. And I thought you were going to say a Bentley, but then <laughs> but, and, and, and also drop the judgment on those two, by the way. I think, I think if someone actually finds inside their heart that this is what they want, that's fair, right? Yeah. And so do you coach people on this? It's like, can you please sit down first and find out what matters to you? Yeah, absolutely. That's actually the first skill. I think it's the one in our book, actually, that has made the biggest difference to me and the one that I most love helping people with, because I don't think people have had a lot of that help before. Mm -hmm. Um, Values are what makes you you. They're what motivate and drive you. We all have them. And we don't have a set of work values and a set of home values. We just have what makes us us. So, for example, my number one value is freedom. That is as important to me at work as it is in my home life. And so at any point when I feel constrained, or restricted at work or at home I act out though <laughs> let's just say that you know I might get defensive or I might just do it though I want to do it anyway because that's that need I have in me for freedom is very very strong and so there are a few ways that people can start to think about it they can reflect on what's most important to them about who they work with 
what they work on and where they work you know just spend like five minutes reflecting on those questions and write down all the words that come to your mind and then start to spot themes because you can often spot themes when I write down well the people that I love working with what's most important to me is they've got lots of energy and they're positive and they make things happen I'd say very similar things about the type of projects that I like to work on I'd say projects with energy and momentum and organizations I'd say organizations that make things happen and move things forward and you can start to spot the threads in Mm. those things that are important to you and it's in the threads that we can get clues as to our values and it is quite a reflective process the other thing that people can do is they can reflect on the highs and lows of their career those collections of jobs because often in our highs it's often when some of our values are fulfilled and when our lows yeah it's when some things are missing and just just connect those insights like do that exercise three highs three lows what's going on there what did i have and what was missing and then the what's most important to me and they're simple exercises that can be quite revealing when you spend the time doing them totally and would you recommend to people who are in a patch of their career where their values are not being met to actually start moving that career forward? I mean, is it okay to stay in a place when you're not feeling fulfilled and you're not getting your values met? I think it depends how long and for what reasons. So, for example, if you need security and stability in your life, it's a bit like going back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, isn't it? Like There are some basic things that we all need. We need a salary we need to be safe we might need a level of security and i think you and have to free them for some of us <laughs> <laughs> for me for me definitely <laughs> but you kind of have to have some of that in place before you can get into you know this fulfillment of the values and then it might be that you are making a choice to be in a certain place for 6 months 9 months a year that doesn't make you happy when you have an insight into your values, at least you can understand why. You know, sometimes you talk to people and they're like, I'm really unhappy in my career. I just don't know why. And I feel really stuck. And your values can give you a bit of clarity. And you're like, oh, okay, it's because I've not got the autonomy that's really important to me, or I've not got the creativity that fills me with energy. And then the thing then to realize is all of those values don't have to all come from your job. So maybe you could start a side project like I did. Maybe you could go and volunteer. Maybe there's a way that you could help somebody else outside of work on something they're doing. It doesn't all have to come from the day job. And I think when we put the expectation that our day job has to fulfill all of our values every moment and every minute, it's a dream. It's that you're never going to be happy. So I run my own company. I love what I do. I love who I work with. But of course, there are days when I think, oh, I've had less freedom today because I feel like my diary was dominated by meetings that I didn't necessarily want to be in. And so I might score that day a bit lower on freedom. But it's about the ability to look at it over time and make sure that over time you're, you feel like you've got a degree of control over how fulfilled your values are because of the choices that you're making. Yeah. Yeah. So let's keep going on the idea of skills. So one one time I heard you talk about resilience as a skill when it comes to our careers. What does that mean? Why is it important? Yeah. Um, so in Squiggly Careers, the kind of world that we're in at the moment, lots of change, lots of uncertainty, that can feel quite exhilarating. Oh, look mm-hmm. at these great opportunities. It can also feel really exhausting because gosh, we're just drawing on our reserves all the time to be able to keep picking ourselves up and keep being better and keep managing with all of this uncertainty. And so 
our ability to invest in our resilience reserves is one of the ways that we are able to cope with all of the change, all of the challenge, all of the uncertainty. And resilience is something that you can invest in for yourself. You can build those reserves. There are some practical ways in which you can do it. So for example, people with higher levels of resilience are very good at asking for the help that they need. People with low levels of resilience tend to bottle it all up, try and do everything themselves, fear what it means if I ask somebody for help. So that's one thing that people can do. People who have higher levels of resilience are also really good at investing in active rest. I find this interesting. What's that? Yeah, imagine a spectrum. And on one side that you've got someone being very restful. So they're almost doing nothing. It's a meditative state, very restful. And then on the other side, you've got somebody who's restless, who can't stop doing everything and is doing 101 things. And in the middle, you have active rest. And there's been some research done by somebody called Alex Pang. There's a lot of work on this topic of rest. And what he has actually looked at is the highest quality rest that we can give for our kind of brains is active rest. And what that means is it's actually not doing nothing. And it's definitely not doing 101 things. It's very consciously investing our kind of mental energy into one specific thing that consumes us. And that can be painting. It can be writing. It can be cooking. It can be playing the piano. But it's one activity that we kind of get lost in where we almost get into our flow. And it's a very conscious thing that we are doing. I spoke to somebody last week and I was talking to them about active rest. And they said, so... Going for a run and doing a work call at the same time, that's not active rest. <laughs> no. Like, no, no, no. It is active, but it's not rest. <laughs> yeah. It's like, just do the run and be in the run. The combination is definitely not it. So I think you've got to find that thing. For me, cooking is like creativity and I just focus on that thing and I don't do other things at the same time. And I enjoy that. And for me, I come away from that feeling kind of, a combination of rested and energized. And I think that's the point of active rest. Restful is just rested. I think the question then would be, how does your husband and the kids feel after that? Are, are you a good cook? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd like to think so, Mo. Yes, I can all cook right, a few things. All right, all right. They, w- they will hear this podcast and we'll see what they think about that. If they, if they ping me offline and say like, She's in denial. (laughs) (laughs) No, but at least it's still active rest. It's wonderful. I mean, honestly, it doesn't have to be good. I I actually mean that wholeheartedly. I, I believe you're a fantastic cook, but even if you were not, just the idea of this relaxes me. This is something that takes my attention. I love, I enjoy doing it. It doesn't have to be perfect. And I think, forget cooking, but think painting, for example. You don't have to be Picasso to paint. You can simply enjoy the process. The idea is in, in finding that flow. What do you think you do, Mo? What do you think your active uh, rest is? Too many, too many, too many. I love writing. Writing is just, oh my God. I mean, I if you give me time, I would write all the time, actually. It is almost my biggest joy now. But I do too many of them. It's actually a problem. I, I don't paint. I uh, use charcoal and I do quite a good job. I just came back to drawing because I finally rented an apartment so I have a home for a while. There you go. That's exciting. You yes. fill it. The tiniest apartment I have ever rented in my life, which is also an interesting project because, again, we were talking about minimalism yesterday. So that's the idea. Talk about resilience for one more second, because this is the age of resilience. This is a very difficult time for a lot of people. What if it gets a little too much? Well, I think... 
it probably will do for an awful lot of people. I think the amount of things that people are having to cope with now, personally and professionally, is really significant. And a lot of people won't have had to do that before. So you might be combining redundancy with health challenges, family. Like It's a very hard time for a lot of people. And, And I think that... If that's you, the most important thing that you can do is find the support that you need in whatever that looks like. And for me, that always looks like people. Like I like being with people. So I would reach out to the people that I would consider who are in my support system and I would talk to them about how I was feeling and I was I would ask for the help that I needed because a lot of the time people don't always see it. You know, we're quite good at continuing on and we're quite good at putting a brave face on. And I think sometimes people don't always see the help that people need. So I think for some people in the first instance, their support systems, friends, families, mentors, managers, they will be able to help them if it feels like it's getting too much. And for some people, they might need to go and get some professional help. They might need to go and see somebody else. I think there's a difference between resilience that you can practically work on on your own and a point at which you're finding things so tough that you need to know that it's okay to go and get some help from somebody else and to go and seek that kind of support and not feel like you failed or that's a bad thing to admit to or there's anything at all wrong in that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I don't think anyone should assume that we fail. I mean, this truly, uh, with all of my years in business and work, this is truly the toughest time we've ever had to face. And it's not that the times are tough. I mean, we've seen economic crisis before. It's just very erratic. You know, the changes are just constant and it's very, very difficult to predict what comes next. And I remain optimistic that winter will be cold and then this will all be behind us, I hope. But at the same time, it is definitely a tough time. And I think a support group is a very, very, very good idea. I was just thinking about when you said I remain optimistic. I think that's another thing that we often talk about in the context of resilience is how pessimism can get in your way. And Martin Seligman, who's a positive psychologist, talks about these three P's of pessimism. It's really interesting. He talks about, you know, you can get really stuck in a situation where you make it very personal. So this is my fault. I've done something wrong here. You make it very pervasive. So one thing's gone wrong in my life and then it's affected lots of that thing didn't go well today. Nothing is going well at the moment for me. Make it very pervasive and or you then go and make it really permanent and you almost make it about your entire future. And it's never going to go right for me. This is never going to go better. I'm never going to get out of this situation. And they are really big traps that can really make us get stuck in a situation yeah. when it's personal and pervasive and permanent. But actually being able to shift to more kind of an optimistic, to see things as passing and to see that we can take small actions and make small improvements and to know that it's not about you is often a process rather than something that's personal. It's a process that lots of us go through. I think they are ways that people can get themselves unstuck when pessimism might be keeping them in a place that might not be great for them. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think there is a place for optimism in where we are? I mean, is this a time where you think people should be looking for opportunities, not just suffering, you know, the challenges? I mean, I'm an optimistic person, so I would say yes, obviously. Uh, because yeah. obviously, I'm <laughs> obviously going to say yes, because that's kind of my frame, my view of the world. Um, I think there are lots of opportunities. I Talk just think me. they might not have been the ones that you would have expected. For me, 
the opportunity to build different relationships with people to get to know people better um I've had the opportunity to work with my business partner in a very different way than we have had over like the sort of 20 years that I have known her I feel like in this year I've got to know her better and I've got to know where we work together well or where we frustrate each other a lot because <laughs> of this experience and that's been a really unique opportunity I've had the opportunity to spend time with my children in a different way than yeah. I would have done before so I think there are lots lots of opportunities they just might not be the ones that you thought you were going to have at the start of the year yeah I mean I constantly tell people who forget how many opportunities are out there that this podcast was born from the lockdown because I saw it as an opportunity. I mean, my idea of spreading happiness was I was going to go on a plane as many times as I can, speak to as many people as I can, put it on the internet and spread the message. And when lockdown happened, I was supposed to do, I think, seven destinations in the following two weeks or something like that. And, you know, instead of sitting down and saying, okay, but, you know, life is against me and everything is wrong, I said, ah, I'm not traveling. I can start a podcast. And truly and honestly, it's spreading the message of happiness so much wider than me going around the world like a pilot. It's actually really, really born from a, an optimism that there is an opportunity in even the biggest of all challenges. Another side I heard you talk about with resilience, I keep coming back to this, by the way, because it's a very, very, very important topic, is Sometimes we load ourselves too much when we talk about resilience and we sort of like accept things being thrown at us. So I'm resilient, I can carry more, I can be tough, right? So we don't set boundaries and then people sort of invade our life with things that are really not, you know, is there a time where we, where we say, look, this is not about resilience. There is a line here, right? I'm going to be resilient in the things I need to be resilient about, but there is a line here that shouldn't be crossed. Yeah, I wonder if that line is respect. So the, the, there's a resilience line where respect comes into it. So respect for yourself and your boundaries. I see a lot, and, I'm, and I've done it myself, you know, you compromise your boundaries for other people. And that's perhaps because you're respecting them more than you're respecting yourself. But our boundaries are there to make us better. Our boundaries are there so that we can switch off from work, so that we can do the things that we're good at. And maybe when we don't respect those boundaries, and we compromise ourselves because we're putting other people first. So yes, I think there is a line we shouldn't just kind of keep taking things on and taking things on. I think we all have a different line. So you've probably got to work out where that is. But I think if you can almost imagine that line as being your personal respect line and know that every time you cross it, you're sort of taking a bit of respect away from yourself, from how to look after for yourself, from how to be your best. Maybe if we thought about it like that, we might protect the boundary a bit more. I believe that. I believe there are many lines, actually, many boundaries. There is the boundary of your time and who crosses that line. Because by giving your time away all the time, if you want, you're really not leaving any for yourself. And I think in the current situation we're in, I think there is a maybe a health and a mental health boundary. It's like if you feel stressed, tell people, that's it, this is enough. I don't want to be there anymore. There are lots of lines. And again, I think our conversation today in general is all about reflect, reflect and try to understand what it is that matters to you, what it is that makes up your value system and so on. So Helen, I think you enjoy what you're doing. Do you really? I mean, you're making people's careers better. 
I love it. You do, right? I absolutely love it. Are you going to stop being squiggly now? Is that what you're going to do for a while? Well, it's, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm, I talk to people about squiggly careers and I'm like, but I want to stay in this one. But I'm still squiggly. Last year, I deliver, ran my business by going physically into people's companies. And now I run my business by delivering global online programs. So my skills have changed. In 12 months, the skills that I use to do my job have completely changed because of how I now have to work. So maybe I'll do the same thing, but my skills will change around me. And, and that's squiggly too. Like it doesn't always have to be doing different jobs. It's just the idea that you're not fixed and that you can move around in different ways and that you can design work in a way that works for you. And hopefully I'm still doing all of that. So still squiggly. Still squiggly it is. And I loved, <laughs> I loved having you on Slow Mo. I am so grateful for your energy, for your optimism, for all the tips that you so generously gave. I mean, I'm not sure why people should come and consult with you anymore. You told us so much. Actually, she can tell you quite a lot more. So do reach out. And your book is Squiggly Careers. That's your correct. work is amazing. And I am so grateful for your time, for your energy, for your optimism, for the laughs we laughed together and for the advice that you gave us. It's really, really wonderful. Thank you so much. You've definitely given me a bit of happiness through this conversation. I've loved talking to you. Thank you so much for bringing us on and helping us to share Squiggly as well. Oh, that was a bundle of energy and optimism. I loved that conversation. I actually think it's an interesting thing to do nowadays to reflect on your career. And by the way, as Helen, so right, so spot on when she said, sometimes reflecting on what matters to you, reflecting on why you like or don't like this job doesn't mean that you have to leave immediately, but it means that you start to understand what's going on and hopefully take some of those steps for the future. And I think the time we're going through now is a time of reflection. And I hope that you use some of the tips and advice that Helen so generously gave us to reflect, to make choices. And hopefully as we come out of the difficult times we're going through, make uh, changes if you have to, or adjust some of what you're doing so that you feel that your career is not that squiggly. Please let me know what you think of this conversation. Find me on social media. Tell me if uh, there is a guest that you want me to bring to slow-mo. Remember to rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts if you're using Apple and to tell your friends about slow-mo and to spread the message. Find me on social media and uh, connect and ask me any question you want. I'm Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram, Mo Gaudet on LinkedIn, M Gaudet on Twitter and mo.gaudet.official on Facebook. I love you all for listening. I know that it's always busy and you have a million and a half things to do. But remember, there is always time to slow down. I'll see you next time.